I've been asked to answer a few questions on climate change. I'm going to give you the data from NASA on these and their shocking facts, and I think everybody should be well aware of them. It'll only take a few minutes, and I think it's well worth uh, listening to this. So these are the questions that I'm going to go through, okay? Like I said, pretty straightforward stuff. First of all, how do the current socio-political economic challenges affect climate change? Well, there's a couple of uh, key things which come to mind. First of all, we get done what we're focused on. What are we focused on at the moment? Well, a lot of attention, particularly public attention, is focused, of course, on the war in Ukraine. That means that same public attention is not focused on making sure politicians' feet are kept to the fire. That's a key problem. Okay, When the world gets around having its attention, as it did during COP26, to a particular issue, governments move. When governments think they're not, think they're not being watched, they tend not to move. That's the first thing. In terms of economics, increasing global debt, national debt that governments have, mean that they've got less money to spend on other things. So what happens? Well, it means that those investments which are needed to shift to more renewable fuels, that money might, because it's future promises, might get shifted elsewhere, perhaps in defense, for instance. Seems an obvious uh, thing. However, there is one slight positive, which is this. The conflict with Russia, certainly for the Western government, if you consider which are the most polluting, China, EU, US, uh, for Western governments, that move away from relying on Russian oil should mean EU, UK, US will be less reliant on hydrocarbons, oil, UK very little reliant on uh, Russian uh, oil and gas. But, and similarly for the US, very little reliance, but it's really for the EU. It might lead to a shift in the EU more towards uh, uh, climate benefiting sources of fuel. All right, second question. Where and when do you think the human species went wrong in the assessment of climate change and its adverse impacts? <clears throat> I think there was an area where we went wrong and there's an area when even though we could have gone right, we continued choosing to go wrong. And it's this. First of all, to some extent, I can't blame us if we don't have the data. When I look at the data on the NASA website, and I like going to the NASA website, okay, basically the level of atmospheric carbon dioxide had never been above the 1950s level for millennia. And we know this because we can dig up old fossils and you can tell the carbon content of the air at that time when those fossils were fossilized, so from thousands of years ago. After the 1950s, it went through the roof. Now, this was partly due to, uh, obviously, what happened in the 1800s and the Industrial Revolution. I don't want to blame the British. I'm Indian. They get blamed enough for everything. But we didn't have the data. We didn't know that would be the impact. So to some extent, I can't blame us. And then, of course, when we realized, the problem became climate denial, which is why I'm referring to uh, data from NASA. I think you've got to be pretty off your face if you think NASA data is uh, somehow uh, just manufactured, artificial, or political, unless you're a flat earth supporter, in which case you definitely don't uh, believe in NASA's data. So that's the basis where I go. Where did we go wrong? Well, we had the deniers, which still exist, and thankfully they have a weaker force in uh, 
uh, in government, and secondly, when we did discover the problem, just didn't take enough notice. Now, why didn't we take enough notice? Well, there we, we're, we're a world of national governments, and each have self-interests. So everybody wants to keep doing what's best for their own country. Uh, that hasn't changed, uh, and unless you can get collusion amongst governments so that everybody is on the same page and doesn't feel that somebody else is free riding and getting away with it, uh, it doesn't work. So we needed to create a cartel. Governments are notoriously bad at colluding and creating cartels as the numbers grow bigger. You could probably create a formula and say the more governments involved, the less likely that collusion will hold. OPEC is, ironically enough, one of the best known cartels in the world, and even they get people cheating, as it were. So what's the problem? Self-interested. As I said, we're, we don't have a united government of the world. We have uh, nation states. So again, do I blame humans? No. We're created as a species of self-interest. The fault is in the maker. How can the UK-India partnership help in working towards handling climate change? Well, um, at COP26, India, at the very last minute, sort of railed back on how quickly it will uh, slow down on coal uh, together with China. Uh, interestingly enough, at COP26, the Chinese stood up and said in Mandarin, in a very short sentence, the Indians would like to say something. The Indians stood up and uh, took it for, I think it was the Brazilians, Indians, and uh, Chinese who were on the, uh, the last minute signing of COP26 and said, we'll make best endeavors as opposed to setting a, a specific goal. Um, so how can UK and India work together? Well, both have interests in, in, in <laughs> the climate. They're both are pretty much on the same page. Uh, despite what happened in the last minutes of COP26, which I think was probably more to do with mismanagement than than malintent on the Indian side, I think it just I think they just got played by the Chinese, uh, who threw the Indians under the bus, and the Indians were more than happy to be thrown under the bus for some reason by the Chinese on this issue. Anyway, uh, what happened is uh, what will happen going forward between UK and India is, of course, that shared knowledge on. Uh, on the technologies that we need. Uh, India has a problem in that it doesn't make enough solar panels domestically of a sufficiently high quality. Britain can help on that. Britain has a problem in carbon extraction technology, which India is rather good at. We've brought companies like Carbon uh, Clean Solutions from India over to the UK using their intellectual property out there, and they've been phenomenal. So I think that partnership of knowledge sharing will be tremendously useful. Uh, plus, India needs a lot of capital, and the UK financial markets are very good at raising capital. India needs a lot of capital, uh, just simply because of the size of the country, and it doesn't have enough domestic capital alone. So it needs to borrow money from other parts of the world. Uh, and I think Britain can help, whether it's green bonds or just raising capital for its companies in the conventional sense through the London markets. Uh, and as I said, the UK is very good at that. How can diversity and inclusion promote an accelerated approach for deriving solutions to climate change? Well, you know, I used to be on the UK-India roundtable. I was appointed to that back in 1999 by the then UK uh, Prime Minister to advise on closer ties between UK and India. And the Indian side at one point said, you know, you guys had mad cow's disease in the UK, and you went running around the Western world 
looking for a solution. Nobody thought to ask the Indians, who have been managing problems relating to diseases relating to cows for decades. And I think that's the problem. I think when you don't have diversity of thought, uh, the problem becomes that you try and use the same old or incremental solutions when you might need revolutionary solutions. And I think diversity and inclusion can give rise to more diversity of thought, which could give rise to revolutionary ideas as opposed to, as I said, just incremental ones. What would you recommend our readers should read in order to learn more about climate emergencies? I think the United Nations and NASA are two very good sources, uh, and those would be the two main places. There's um, obviously Al Gore's work, uh, An Inconvenient Truth. I think TED Talks on this subject are phenomenal. Uh, they're very, very good. So NASA, United Nations, Al Gore, An Inconvenient Truth, and TED Talks on this. What would you recommend our readers? Oops, I've just answered that. How can the Asian community contribute towards building a better and more sustainable future amid solving the climate crisis? Well, of course, a lot of the Asian community, and by this, I take it you mean British Asian. Uh, by that, we usually mean from the Indian subcontinent. So if I, and, and a significant number of those will be, share the same faith as me, Hinduism. They might be Jain, they might be Sikh, but you know, the Brahmic faith, Dharmic faiths. If you're from the Dharmic faiths, then the environment is a core part of your faith, looking after the world. Uh, the, the idea being that God exists in all things, animate and inanimate. I think it's an important part of our faith to remember, and not just to remember, but to use that in, in our daily actions, whether it's recycling, not wasting, you know, there used to be the old joke that an Indian goes to the fridge, opens up a tub of what looks like ice cream, and inside they find know, something completely different which they didn't want to eat. Why? Because we have the habit of recycling containers, particularly as Gujaratis, as my Punjabi in-laws keep mentioning. Now they're not laughing. Now they're saying, hey, this is a good idea. This is what we're supposed to do, not just throw, throw things out. Um, so I think going back to that, old attitude that our parents had when they first came to this country and when money was so tight that you didn't just throw away clothes. You didn't just keep buying new ones. You didn't just have fast fashion. You did recycle and reuse and relabel and repurpose. And I think going back to that attitude and using faith to communicate to people, not, not necessarily mentioning your faith all the time and shoving it down people's throats, uh, but using that as part of living your faith by taking those actions, by communicating with MPs or whenever you have an opportunity to push this agenda with anybody. Your MPs say, if we get one letter, we'll act on it because we assume there's a thousand people who haven't written to us. So writing just even one letter on it makes a difference. It makes a difference. Okay. Uh, if we were to describe how the earth would look 50 years later, what would it be like? Well, let me tell you some scary facts. <clears throat> The planet's average surface temperature has risen about two degrees since the late 19th century, a change driven largely by increased carbon dioxide emissions into the atmosphere and other human activities. Most of the warming occurred in the past 40 years, with, seven, with the seven most recent years being the warmest. The year 2016 and 2020 are tied for the warmest year on record, so guess what? It's going to get hotter, and the oceans are going to start rising. The ocean has absorbed much of the increased heat 
with the top 100 meters of ocean showing warming of more than 0.6 degrees Fahrenheit since 1969. Earth stores 90% of the extra energy in the oceans. It's the oceans that take that heat and get bigger. Green, think of that then impacting shrinking ice sheets. The Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets have decreased in mass. Data from NASA's Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment show Greenland lost an average of 279 billion tons of ice per year between 1993 and 2019, while Antarctica lost about 148 billion tons of ice per year. What, what does that mean? Well, glaciers also start retreating. Glaciers are retreating almost everywhere around the world, including the Alps, Himalayas, Andes, Rockies, Alaska, and Africa. Decreased snow cover. Satellite observations reveal that the amount of spring snow hovering the northern hemisphere has decreased over the past five decades, and snow is meant melting earlier. It means floods, natural disasters, loss of habitat for other species. But it also means sea level rising. Global sea level rose about 8 inches, 20 centimeters, in the last century. The rate in the last two decades is nearly double that of the last century and accelerating slightly every year. Just goodbye to the Maldives. Nobody really cares about the Maldives other than the Maldivians and people who holiday there. But they will care when it's everywhere else around the world and the coastal towns and cities and the disasters and their tax bills go up because somebody's got to pay for all that. And let's not forget, in Britain, we live on an island. Declining Arctic sea ice. Both the extent and thickness of Arctic ice has declined rapidly over the last several, uh, last several decades. Extreme events. The number of record high temperature events in the United States has been increasing, while the number of record low temperature events have been decreasing since 1950. The US, just to give one example, has also witnessed increasing numbers of intense rainfall events. So you're going to get rain in areas you're not supposed to, more of it than is useful for agriculture and could be damaging, and less rain in areas where you actually need it. I won't go on. There's a hell of a lot more. So how does it look 50 years from now? Pretty bleak, I'm afraid. Pretty bleak.